today's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The message of salvation to all. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of God. Thank you, Gillian, for reading God's word for us this morning. Thank you, church, for being here. Uh, this is uh, actually the first time I, I really have opportunity to address you since Sherry and I have returned from our leave. And I'd just like to take a personal moment of uh, privilege to share our gratitude to you for the way you love and care for your pastoral team. Uh, allowing us to go on this leave has, has been a precious thing for us. It allowed me to meet a grandson I'd never met before. It helped me to uh, be able to preach at my son's church so he could be at a funeral for his mother-in-law. And of course, it allowed us to go to that property sometimes you hear about uh, too much. Uh, th this is a, a time of special joy and rest for us. Um, as you can see, we have a year's worth of grass to cut and allows us to see some of the wildlife in Canada, bush grandbabies. And, and this year... Uh, because of your allowing us to go on this leave, I was able to do something uh, which really ministered to us, maybe our marriage, and that is I, I put in an outdoor shower, <laughs> hot water outdoor shower. Did I say this is Canada for the first time in 17 years, Sherry could take a hot shower? So actually, you have saved my marriage. Thank you for that. Now, I did come back a week earlier than Sherry did because, you know, I'm a guy, and after a few hugs, I'm, I'm ready to move on, but Sherry was not done with those grandbabies. So while I was back for a week by myself, 
I took special opportunity to do something that I ordinarily wouldn't do because Sherry is not as risk tolerant as am I. So I launched into this, this personal, um, I call it digital detox, which meant um, I began to drive around Singapore without my smartphone, meaning without my GPS. Because, where's Chong Tian? Chong Tian, brother, I've been to your place like at least 24 times. And every single time I go there, I use a GPS. I've become addicted to my smartphone, which makes me feel like I'm becoming less and less smart. So I decided to go out exploring myself. You didn't know I was on my way to your place, Chong Tian. Yeah. I drove without my smartphone, a complete digital detox, and I discovered something about Singapore. It really is impossible to get lost in Singapore. <laughs> uh, I mean, honestly, I mapped it out for you. All roads in Singapore lead to my house. <laughs> I, I just basically developed two rules of a digital detox in driving, and that is you are never lost, just keep going. That might be kind of a man rule. Just keep going, eventually you'll get home. And then, of course, the second rule is don't go in the water. So, so um, here is an issue in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. As we return to our theme, which is grace together, specifically we look at chapter 10 this morning, the fundamental theological conundrum for the Apostle Paul is this. If in fact all prophetic roads lead to Christ, if, if all of the Old Testament, every road in it, leads home to Christ, how is it that God's chosen people still manage to remain lost? If all roads lead to Him, how is it that some who have been called still remain in a situation that keeps them in darkness and in bondage? This is the fundamental question that the Apostle Paul begins to try and unravel. Children of promise who have rejected the promised one. And so he begins in chapter 10, the first four verses with this assumption. Christ is the goal. He is home. Verses 1 through 4. And the first part of this assumption is the Jews are passionate. They're passionate for God, but without knowledge. We can see this in the first two verses. Brothers, my, heart my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's not criticizing them. He's agonizing over them. This is a verb that is consistent and ongoing. My constant prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. How is it possible with all of the Old Testament that the people chosen of God could have a zeal for Him, but not according to to knowledge. It's, it's important to notice that he's not criticizing them. In, in, in fact, he's identifying with them. He would say, I am that people. 
I was that one. My resume is full of a zeal for God. No one was more zealous for God than was I. I was full of this ignorant zeal. It's a part of my personal testimony. And we can see that testimony in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely here, zealous was I for the traditions of my father. I was them, full of this zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. I passionately pursued the church because I considered them Jewish heretics. I drugged them out of their homes before the Sanhedrin, before the religious courts. I sought to persecute them. So passionate was I. You see what he's suggesting here is ignorance has a root the source of ignorance is an innate, blinding desire to define and establish my own righteousness. I want to be my own God, make my own decisions, become the Messiah I want or think I need. I want to be the one, like a dear friend of mine in Malaysia once said, I love the idea of a savior. I think it's great for my kids. I think it's wonderful for my wife that she has believed. But me, I just can't get off that, what do you think he said, throne. I'm the king of my castle. I'm the ruler of my family and my life. I'm the designer of my destiny. That is is the blindness that had overtaken God's promised people. We want to have our own righteousness. So the second thing he would say about them is they are seeking. They're seeking, but not after God. Verse 3 says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to what? Establish their own. Their own what? Righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Because my righteousness makes me feel better. And just so you know, we're heading to a flashing amber light, which means warning. It is amazing to me as a pastor how many of us who call ourselves believers embrace the grace of God. We trust Him. We come to Him in faith only. We embrace the New Testament and then we slip back into the Old Testament. And suddenly we begin to judge our righteousness by the rules we keep. We begin to judge others by the rules they do not adhere to. And we become a synagogue and not a Church, we begin to seek our own righteousness and forget to seek the righteousness of God for being ignorant of the righteousness. The people of Israel sought to establish their own. It's not unique to Israel. We have an incredible capacity to invest in things that do not matter and do not bring us peace and do not lend us righteousness. We have a tremendous capacity to seek our own right standing before God. 
third point he makes in these verses is Christ is the ultimate destination, not our righteousness, not even our salvation. Christ is the destination. Here's what he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And now let me caution you, the end does not mean Christ terminates the law. It doesn't mean that Christ abolished the law. That word telos, it's a Greek word, actually means the goal or the fulfillment of the law. Christ is the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So why then would Peter say that Christ is not only the founding stone, that Christ that was laid in Zion by God the Father, but he's the stumbling stone. Why is he then a stumbling stone? Because at the end of Israel's chosen road was not a Messiah, but their own righteousness. This is why Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders of his day in John 5, said this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Every scripture is a road that leads home to Christ. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believed Moses then you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me. He speaks of Israel's most revered preacher, Pastor Moses. Moses, Jesus said, wrote about me. His sermons were roads that led to righteousness found only in me. And that is why in this next block of text, Paul directly accesses the archives of Hebrew sermons and lifts a sermon of their revered preacher Moses and references it. This is what he says. Salvation is an outcome, is a consequence. It's not the goal. Christ is the goal. Salvation is an outcome of being in Christ. For Moses writes, here he is accessing this sermon, about the righteousness is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is from Moses' sermon in Leviticus 18.5. But then he continues in verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? Now he interprets. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. He is saying the Old Testament sermon required faith in God's work alone. As does this New Testament sermon that requires faith in Christ alone. Alone. This is a sermon preserved for us in Deuteronomy chapter 30. You ought to write down that. It's a fundamental passage in Scripture in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 18. Um, and, and specifically, 
as we come to verses 19 and 20 of that sermon, Moses leads into what we would now call in the 21st century an altar call. And he leads in this way by saying this, I have set before you heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And this is important. The law is your life. Are you with me? You, you know, I've said before, right, that the reason churches are in trouble today is too many of you listen to people like me and not enough of us read God's word. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. The Lord is your life. He is your length of days. You see what he's doing here? He, he's saying the righteousness required by the law is satisfied by the righteousness provided by God. Not by my works of righteousness, but by his work of righteousness. He's creating a heavenly courtroom scene. He's saying, here I've presented before you life and death, and, and, and death blessing and curse. Now choose life. Now, now it's important to recognize what he's saying, choose life, the Lord is your life, the God of time and space is your length of days. He's not saying, choose life or choose righteousness and I will show you the way to life. He's saying, choose me, for I am life. And why did Jesus in John 10.10 say that he has come? I have come that they might have what? Life. And have it more abundantly. Because it is he who inspired Moses to preach this message. He is the word. He doesn't teach you the word. Christ is the word. He is the truth. He doesn't teach you principles of truth. Truth is a person. He doesn't show you the way. He is the way. That's why the road is narrow. Because the road has a name, and the name is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That means that Christ is both the road and the destination. And this is why, in fact, those of you who attended our a biblical counseling seminar, some of you did, about 160 people were there, you heard this statement made by our leader. Christian is not the primary way that followers of Jesus are identified in the New Testament. In fact, those of you who are there, how many times is the word Christian used in the New Testament? Three times. Do you know how many times the primary way Christians are identified is identified in the New Testament? 242 times followers of Christ are identified as being in Christ. 242 times. Those who are in Christ is the primary way we are identified. He is both the journey 
and the destination. We are in him. Not in creation, not in Singapore. We are in Christ. Believers are hidden in the one who is the way. Hidden in the one who is the life. Hidden in the one who is Christ. And so the apostle says this. Because, and I'm going to give you a red flag here. Because some of you became a Christian by saying this prayer. Call it the sinner's prayer. I did the same thing. I was told if you just say this prayer, then somehow there will be power in those words and you will then be a Christian because... He writes, verses 9 and 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. Sounds right? Right? Except Paul is not meaning to provide a formula prayer to induce salvation, he is describing what we are able to do because of the work God has already done. He is simply following the pattern of Moses' sermon. The word is very near you. It's not really hard work. The word is near you, in your mouth. So he says, confess with your mouth. He says, in your heart, believe in your heart. And so I was trained, and many of us were trained, if we just do this, say this prayer, if we believe, if we confess, then we will be saved. Here's the problem. We have a tendency to be so New Testament, we forget that the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. Paul is assuming that his readers are familiar with Moses' sermon, Choose Life. He assumes, therefore, that you would interpret this with an awareness of the first point of that sermon that we can see in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord, your God, will circumcise your hard heart in the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. You see, this message began with the work of God, not a work of Ian, not a work of Moses. It wasn't that the people of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness seeking God. God pursued them and led them and did a miraculous work in their hearts so that they could love him. If you're here today and you love God, then celebrate him because he has done this miraculous work in your heart that enables you to confess him as your Lord. Why was this so remarkable? Why was this such a miracle in the first century? Because this was the church in Rome. In Rome, there was only one man who was Lord. It was Caesar. Caligula was Lord. Not a Jew named Jesus. 
But because God had done a work in their hearts, they were able to confess. Because God would, had done a work in their hearts, belief was not their achievement and it's not ours either. Because of his miraculous work, we can confess, you are Lord. We can confess, yes, I believe because he has done this work in me. Moses knew. Paul was convinced that without this supernatural work of God in our lives, none of us could embrace him and none of us can live. Not only we, but our faith from beginning to end is his workmanship. That's why we ought to have humble joy when we think of the cross. That's why when we're able to confess, when we're able to believe, all of creation bears witness. The heavens express joy because of his good work in us. Finally, this is troublesome. A road for everyone. By the way, I hope you are being like Paul right now. Empathic. Feeling empathy and grief. Not judgment by Jews who don't get it. A road for everyone in verses 11 through 13. For scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will, be put to will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Why? Because all who are able to call on him, he has visited first and has done a miraculous work of the heart in them, expressed his affection for them, called them his own, and so they are able to call on him. And so the heavenly courthouse is able to declare them righteous because of Christ's righteous work on the cross. All of creation and the cross bear testimony. He is their Lord. This is an important word for this particular church in Rome and for our particular church. Because remember, the reason for this series, Grace Together, and the reason for this study on the church in Rome, it's in history. Because the emperor Tiberius worried that the Jews were seeking to convert others with their wealth and leveraged that wealth to suggest if you just became Jews and were circumcised like us, then you'd find the favor of the Almighty God. Tiberius pushed all Jews out of Rome. And that meant many of the Jewish Christians had to leave as well. But now Tiberius was dead. And his grandson Caligula was Caesar. And Caligula didn't care much about civic affairs. He was more into, well, just affairs. And so the Jewish people began to trickle back into Rome. 
And when the Jewish Christians came back to the places where their church worshipped, they realized, wait, wait, wait a minute, our church has been repopulated by outsiders. These people didn't begin faith as Jews. These people were Greek. They're, they're Greeks. They're Greek-speaking Romans. They're not like us. And so the Apostle Paul had to write this letter that is more than just a theological textbook. It's how do people with good theology demonstrate good behavior living together in grace and with grace together. Churches that are growing have this issue. Perhaps in the last several months as you have seen people going into this grave and confessing Jesus as a Lord and celebrating the life he has brought to them. Perhaps you've been wondering, where are all these outsiders coming from? They weren't with us at Camp Silat. Or, or they weren't with, with us at the Chapel of the Holy Spirit. Have they been properly vetted? That's the question that was being asked in Rome. Paul, you know, we have all these outsiders here. Uh, we don't know if they've been properly vetted. And so the Apostle Paul has preserved for us the vetting of the first century church. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. The same Lord is Lord of all. I am extraordinarily blessed that Grace Baptist Church is beginning to look like Singapore. Because wherever the gathered church looks and gathers, we ought to look like the nations that have gathered in that place. Our primary affinity should never be We all have the same culture or we all come from the same ethnicity. It should always be we all have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. We all believe that God has raised him from the dead. And that becomes our new gospel culture. A multicultural church is a divided church. A gospel-shaped church is a church that has embraced only one culture, the culture of Christ. Increasingly, the Apostle Paul has to remind the Roman church how to live as one body but many different parts. We're going to end here this week. But as we prepare this morning to come to this table, this memorial table that points back to the moment when Christ did the heavy working, the heavy lifting of the cross, of our salvation, when we realize we don't need to say, who will go into the heavens Who will go down into the pit? Who will do all this work for us? 
God says, I'm already there. And I have come to circumcise your hearts. It is very near. In your mouth. In your heart. And all of creation watches. So as our musicians come, as those who come to help us serve come, I want to invite you to consider one thing. What are you currently using in your life to lend you a sense of righteousness, significance? What kind of righteousness are you platforming in your life right now? People in your workplace, 